0: As we say here in the Hawaiian Islands, aloha kakahiaka. That means good morning. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 7th of March, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Season show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, and I'm coming to you today from... Honolulu, Hawaii, where I have been maintaining a home for quite a number of years now. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, a place long known as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640. And since its humble beginnings, the town has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay, just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. My friends, you're a part of our history, and so I send to you, even out here in the Hawaiian Islands, my heartfelt aloha and congratulations. And I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, friends, I have to announce something before we go on with the show. Today is my final day, at least on this trip, anyway. Here in Honolulu, I've heard that <laughs> I've been uh, I've been missing out on a lot of uh, colorful weather back there in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, you know, I always warn people that when I uh, leave town and come out here, that I'm going to take any mild winter. Uh, weather that uh, that we have with me rest assured i'm going to do everything in my power to bring it back to you that's a promise so uh, with that said we've got a great show for you today today so please sit back relax and without any further delay let's get started Coming up on today's show. Aloha e komomai, mai, as we say in Hawaii, from my home in Honolulu, Hawaii, I welcome you to the 7th of March, 2023 show. It's Women's History Month across the USA, from the Greenwich Historical Society's History from Home online resource. You'll learn from Heather Lodge about three women who left their mark on the town's history. Dr. Valeria Park, Anya Seaton, and Gertrude Johnson Steadwell. The Hawaiian Mission House's historic site and archives here in Honolulu preserves Hawaii's oldest New England Western-style homes and features an archive of American Protestant missionaries, including those who came from Greenwich, Stamford, Danbury, and elsewhere. My special guest today is Mike Smola, who is the curator of public programs. On Greenwich and the Gilded Age, our weekly journey will take us to Roanoke, built for Percy Rockefeller and his family, as described in the February 1908 edition of the Greenwich News. In Greenwich Life as it is and was, Lucian B. Edwards published a piece a century ago in January 1923 in the Greenwich News and Graphic. It describes the building up of Casca by Carolyn Smith Mead, calling Mead Avenue, Coscob's Fifth Avenue, and how its stately homes originated, and that Mrs. Mead was Greenwich's first female real estate developer at the age of 81 years before she died in 1910. On crimes and misdemeanors, in 1908, David Farrington was fined $5 for trespassing and shooting in self-defense, a dog owned by Emil Boas, who in turn had his dogs confiscated and fined $10 for a lack of proper licenses. Both men engaged in a he-said-he-said-heated exchange in the local press in, quote-unquote, what we would call today the court of public opinion. The Arbor Press then stated the art printing plant. Later, Conde in Old Greenwich was ready to open to much acclaim in the local media in early 1920, and I'm going to provide you with some of the details. On Wedding Bells in Greenwich, you'll learn about the nuptials in February 1908 of Dr. Lee For- DeForest. Quote, the wireless telegraph inventor who is Marconi's greatest rival, unquote, and Nora Blatch, quote, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. W. H. Blatch of New York City, granddaughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and one of the very few women civil engineers in the world. From all around the town, don't damn it, yelled the headlines in 1907. An attempt was made to block the construction of the Mayanus River Dam just north of East Putnam Avenue. It's still there today. In 1881, Greenwich's reading room and library was celebrated as having quote an educational influence on this community which cannot be overrated secession was in the air in 1907 when quote unquote wealthy new yorkers in sound beach old greenwich today and riverside wanted to secede from the town of greenwich prohibition was in full swing in the 1920s yet as was revealed in march 1923 quote if one wants to set up a home brewery and get real beer, if he really wants to make his own sacramental wines, if he wants to get his own alcohol for making liqueurs, or wishes to go further and obtain a thorough understanding of all the wines and ales and whiskies, the public libraries of the country supply all the information. And yes, my friends... To those in favor of prohibition, this was a big deal. (laughs) I received a request from the new owners of 146 Old Mill Road in Round Hill. The new owners are curious about its history. They are also curious to know who the original owner of this charming home is. Who could it be? Do you know? Well, please let me know. I'd like to pass the word along to them. The Ambassador Museum of the United States of America is a supporting sponsor of this show podcast. We're giving our listeners and their families a heads up with some terrific news. Our young people are to be invited to participate in in an essay contest made possible by AM USA, We'll have preliminary details today with a formal announcement on the March 14 show. And remember, my friends, sports more than just a game is the newest exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society. It opens to the public on March 8, 2023. Well, I gotta tell you something, there's lots to see, lots to do, and to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, you've come to the right place to learn about the history of this town, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned, we'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at a m u s a. Dot info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets, with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203 485 Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Well, it's time for Greenwich in the Gilded Age. Of course, this was a period from 1880 to 1930. I decided to go uh, to the February 28th, 1908 edition of the Greenwich News. And in it, there is a description of Percy Rockefeller's residence, uh, in the Clapper Ridge area of um, uh, of town, um, and I decided that uh, I would share this with you. I find it uh, very interesting, and uh, and I hope that uh, that you do as well. Of course, it's uh, it is about our stateliest mansion, uh, says the headline. The house in which a family of four is to live has sixty four rooms and fifteen bathrooms, a shower bath that costs one thousand dollars. That would be in 1908 dollars and a butler's pantry sink that cost 700 dollars beautiful carved furnishings and costly marble fireplaces would not you like to live there it sounds nice well the article goes as follows Of the many magnificent residences which have made Greenwich the most famous of the beautiful suburbs that surround New York, the largest and perhaps the most palatial has just been completed and by the 1st of April, that would be in 1908, will be furnished in a style which accords with its mammoth dimensions and imposing architecture. This is the $500,000 residence of Percy A. Rockefeller, a nephew of the great oil magnate and son of William Rockefeller, who was formerly a resident of this town, but whose estate in Terrytown, New York, of course, now covers more than 2,000 acres. The new house stands on one of the most beautiful spots in town at the junction of the Clappard Ridge and Pexland Roads, almost opposite the estate of Mr. Rockefeller's brother, W.G. Rockefeller. The use of the ground. Uh, permits a view of the sound and of all of the surrounding country for miles, yet it is easily accessible from town. The building was begun in October 1907, and since then work has been uh, rushed uh, on it until now, it stands a triumph of the modern architects and builders' art and a showplace for all who visit Greenwich. The house, which is to be occupied by Mr. and Mrs. Rockefeller and their two children, is 212 feet in breadth and 68 feet in depth and has altogether 64 rooms. It is built of stucco with a large portico in front with large pillars of white freestone. The main portion of the building is four stories high and has wings on either side two stories high. On the first floor are the library into which the main room entrance opens, the dining room, the breakfast room, the pantry, the kitchen, etc. On the right and the sitting room, the flower room and Mr. Rockefeller's private office on the left. The library is some 60 feet long and about half as wide. It is furnished with a new Uh, Let's see. Oh, I'm sorry. It is furnished in dark weathered oak with bookshelves of the same material built in the walls. The ceilings are paneled and as soon as a sufficient time has elapsed, these panels will be hand decorated. At either end of the library are huge fireplaces with canned uh, marble masterpieces beautifully carved. The dining room is somewhat smaller in dimensions. Like most of the other rooms in the house, it's furnished in cherry-covered with white enamel. At the east end of the room is an immense fireplace of French marble carved with wonderful skill. Not least interesting of the rooms on the first floor is Mr. Rockefeller's office. It is furnished in weathered oak with the walls and ceiling parallel in the same material. The carving of the oak along the walls is exquisitely done. In the front of the building across the hall from the office and adjoining the library is a sitting room of grand proportions. This too is finished in cherry enameled in white. The fireplace is of the finest Italian marble and is probably the costliest piece of marble in the house. The butler's pantry and kitchens are models of modern culinary equipment. Some idea of the scale upon which the department of the house has been provided may be gained from the fact that the white metal sink in the butler's pantry to be used exclusively for dishwashing, cost $700. All of the chambers on the second and third floors are beautifully finished and even the servants quarters are excellently appointed. Nearly the whole, the whole house is provided with hardwood floors. The house is filled with most improved of modern sanitary and heating arrangements. There are altogether 14 bathrooms. Mr. Rockefeller's private bath is a marvel. It is about 20 feet square. In one corner is a shower bath of marble and glass, the approximate cost of which was $1,000. The house is heated not by steam or hot water, but by vapor, a new system which does not require pressure, but which uses the vapor from the water when it is at a temperature just a little lower than uh, Than at which steam is formed. This vapor is generated in three huge, three huge boilers with mammoth fireboxes in the basement of the building. The two ounces pressure keeps the great building comfortable in the coldest weather. There are three elevators in the house, an electric elevator for passengers, a hand elevator for freight, and another which will be used as a dumbwaiter. Not the least interesting portion of the building is the basement. There are located besides the furnished furnace rooms and the great laundries and washrooms for the family, a servant's washroom, and a great ironing room, and a drying room, which will be used when the weather will not permit the hanging of clothes outside to dry. In summer or winter, this place will make an ideal home of the more magnificent order. Particularly in the spring and summer, will it be attractive. On the eastern end of the building is a veranda 30 by 60 feet, Open to all the sound breezes and affording an excellent view. The work of the building is under the charge of H.W. Dederdrick of Elizabeth, New Jersey, one of the most famous builders in the United States. Mr. Dederdrick built many of the buildings on William Rockefeller's estate in Tarrytown, as well as his well-known lodge in the adirondacks which is reputed reputed rather to be the finest lodge in the country he has constructed many large factories as well as palatial residences the mammoth work was done by thomas j rich of greenwich and that my friends was percy rockefeller's residence as portrayed in the greenwich news published on friday february 28 1908 kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelus and and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Greenwich Library is very, very pleased to announce that this coming Thursday evening, March 9th, 2023, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the Byram Schubert Library Community Room, the story of suffrage in Greenwich with... Heather Lodge will be held. The story of suffrage in Greenwich will be presented by Heather Lodge. She is the manager of youth and family programs at the Greenwich Historical Society. This lecture, based on the Greenwich Historical Society's 2019 exhibit, An Unfinished Revolution, will highlight some of the incredible local women who helped move the dial on women's rights. Among those highlighted will be Grace Gallatin-Seaton, mother of the famous writer Anya Seaton, and wife of Ernest Thompson-Seaton, co-founder of the Boy Scouts, Carolyn Roots-Reese, headmistress of Rosemary Hall, philanthropist, Louisiana, have Dr. Valeria Parker, and Bush Holly House's own Emma Constant Holly McRae. Changes, change takes many hands and many steps. Come learn what steps were taken here in Greenwich leading up to the passage of the 19th Amendment. This is in association with the Greenwich Library. Again, this will be this coming Thursday evening, March 9th, 2023, starting at 7 p.m. at the Byram Schubert Library Community Room. You can go to Greenwich library.org, and register online. March marks Women's History Month, and there is a wonderful article by Heather Lodge, in the History from Home section of the Greenwich Historical Society's website, which you can find at greenwichhistory.org. If you look under the Library and Archives section and scroll down, it's the third one down. It says History from Home. Just click that. And uh, this particular article is called Women's History Month, Greenwich Women Leave Their Mark. It's by Heather Lodge. I'd really like to share this with you. Each year, March is designated Women's History Month by Presidential Proclamation. The month is set aside to honor women's contributions in American history. To mark the occasion, the Greenwich Historical Society invites you to read about three women who lived most of their lives in Greenwich and had an immense impact on the everyday lives of women both in town and beyond. The first of the women to be portrayed here is Dr. Valeria Parker. She lived from 1879 to 1959. Valeria Parker was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. She moved to Greenwich soon after starting a family and lived most of her her life. A woman of many hats, she became a doctor in a time when it was unusual for a woman to have a career. A lifelong advocate for better awareness of public health and social hygiene, Valeria was part of a new and revolutionary sexual education movement that began during the Progressive Era. She served as an officer in the Connecticut and American Social Hygiene Association and wrote a book on the subject. Her book, For Daughters and Mothers, was published in 1940 to help women and girls talk about menstruation and sexual health. Valeria was also a policewoman. During World War I, she became the first female member of the state police in the United States. She later became the first supervisor of state police women in Connecticut, looking over a group of police women stationed in New London. Finally, Valeria was a suffragist. The Greenwich Equal Franchise League, in which she served as both president and vice president, was founded in her home on East Sputnam Avenue in 1909. She was also the press officer for the Greenwich Women's Suffrage Association. Valeria spent much of her life writing and lecturing on the topics of social hygiene and suffrage. Her work led to a greater understanding of women's health as well as women's participation in government. The next woman that is portrayed here is Anya Seaton who lived from 1904 to 1990. Anya Seton was the daughter of Ernest Thompson Seton, a naturalist and co-founder of the Boy Scouts, and Grace Gallatin Seaton, author and suffragist. Born in Manhattan, Anya spent most of her life in Greenwich. Anya is best known for her works of historical fiction, though this was not a career she pursued until she was well into her 30s. Her first novel, My Theodosia, was inspired by the mysterious disappearance of Aaron Burr's daughter, Theodosia. Curiosity turned into study, and study turned into writing. The book was published in 1941. Over her life, Anya wrote a dozen books of historical fiction, most of which starred strong and spunky female characters. She was known for her rigorous research and personal flair. Two of Anya's books, Dragonwick, who published in 1944, and Foxfire in 1950, were turned into Hollywood films. However, her most famous book in Greenwich circles is the 1958 novel The Winthrop Woman, about Greenwich founder Elizabeth Feeks. Many items and writings belonging to Anya and her family are preserved at the Greenwich Historical Society. If you would like to see them, you can book an appointment at our archives. You can also visit what remains of her childhood home, Windigool. The Seton property in Costco became Pomerantz Park in 2002. The park is open to the public and has several trails you can enjoy. Visit and see how nature may have inspired the young Anya. And the final woman to be portrayed in this piece is Gertrude Johnson Stedwell, who lived from 1909 to 2007. Gertrude Johnson Stedwell was born in Greenwich and lived in town most of her life. When she was a young child, she wanted to be a campfire girl, but was not allowed to because of the color of her skin. This was a turning point for her, and she recalled thinking, quote, when I get old enough, I'm going to do something about it, unquote. Gertrude spent her adult life as a civil rights activist. In 1938, she joined the Greenwich Action Committee for Jobs on jobs for Negroes that later evolved into the Greenwich chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, also known as the NAACP, of which he became a founding member. Gertrude was also president of the State Association of Colored Women and vice president of the national chapter president of the Greenwich Women's Civic Club, president of the 1210 chapter of the American Association of Retired Persons, also known as the AARP, and a member of at least a dozen other local groups and organizations organizations. Gertrude was most proud of her work with the Southwestern Connecticut Committee on Fair Employment, another group that she helped found. There, she started a grassroots program to write, promote, and support a fair labor bill to ensure fair employment for black people. Thanks in no small part to her hard work, the bill was passed. When she was not advocating, Gertrude was a businesswoman. After working at several interior design jobs, Gertrude decided that since she was the one doing the work, she should be the one calling the shots. She ran her own interior design business for decades. Gertrude Johnson Steadwell took part in the oral history project in 1990. Transcripts of her interview can be found at the Greenwich Historical Society archives and the Greenwich Library. The original recording can be found at the library. If you are interested in recording an oral history, you can check out the following sources. They're listed here on on this page. That would be the Greenwich Oral History Project, Library of Congress, American Folklife Center, the Oral History Society, and Learning for Justice Oral History Project. All of this was written by Heather Lodge. Heather, thank you so much for this wonderful tribute as we mark the beginning of Women's History Month, year 2023. (music) Throughout the history of Greenwich, there have been many weddings that have been held here in town. There's a variety of different reasons for that. Um, It was actually a lot easier uh, in um, an earlier time to get married in Connecticut than it was in New York. We had people that would come up from uh, the city and also from the state of New York to uh, to come to Greenwich and other places in Connecticut to get married. Some of them were celebrities, of course. Um, And I have a celebrity wedding that I'd like to share with you. This happened or it was published in the Greenwich News on February 28th, 1908. And um, this is a very, very interesting marriage uh, because of the woman who, well, actually both uh, partners were um, very interesting people, but it is Women's History Month, and I think that this is one that will um, certainly resonate. The headline reads, Dr. DeForest, Wireless Inventor and Miss Blake, Engineer at United by Justice Radford. One of the most remarkable weddings that has taken place in this Gritna Greenwich of ours was that performed on Monday by Justice Stephen L. Radford. The parties were Miss Nora Blach, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. W. H. Blach of New York City, granddaughter of Elizabeth Caddy Stanton, and one of the very few women civil engineers in the world, to Dr. Lee DeForest, the wireless telegraph inventor, who is Marconi's greatest rival. The contracting parties came to town accompanied by three witnesses. They went to the town hall where they obtained the license and thence proceeded to Justice Radford's office, where the simple ceremony required by law was performed. The couple and their friends returned immediately to New York City where in the evening the reception was held at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Blanche. It is understood that the reason the couple came here to be married was that Mr. DeForest was a divorced man, his former wife having obtained a decree less than a year ago. The bride is 25 years old and was the first woman to gain the degree of civil engineer from Cornell University and the first woman to be elected to membership in the American Society of Civil Engineers. For a year, she was a member of the engineering staff of the New York, New York Board of Water Supply and helped to lay out the Catskill water system. She has won fame as an athlete and holds a record for long distance swimming in Cayuga Lake. You are listening to the Greenwich Town For All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town For All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. When I relocated to Honolulu, Hawaii on March 1st 1995, the Hawaiian Mission House's historic site and archives was one of my primary destinations. In fact, I was immersed in this place for the first year of my time here. The Hawaiian Mission House's historic site and archives enriches the community, and it fosters thoughtful dialogue and greater understanding of the role of the Congregational and Presbyterian missionaries, especially those that came from New England, and the impact it had on the history of Hawaii, but also on the United States, uh, too. This amazing place preserves the heritage and interprets the story of these American Protestant missionaries, some of whom came from Greenwich and Stamford, their descendants, their relationships with the people and cultures of Hawaii, all interconnected with contemporary life, history, and all of it encouraging a deeper understanding and appreciation of the complex history of Hawaii. Believe it or not, those of you especially on the East Coast, I don't think you realize just how complicated uh, and fascinating the history of this place is and how it very much relates to our own. My guest today is Mike Smola. He is the curator or director of public programs at the Hawaiian Mission House's Historic and Archives. If you wish to learn more, and I certainly hope that you do, you can go online to www.missionhouse.com Org. Mike Smola, thank you very much for uh, spending some time with me um, uh, today here at the Hawaiian Mission Houses uh, Museum and Archives uh, here, or Historic Site and Archives in Honolulu. First of all, tell us about yourself.
1: Uh, so my name is Mike Smola. I'm the curator of public programs here at the Hawaiian Mission Houses Historic Site and Archives. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in history from Michigan State University, and I also have a certificate in museum studies also from Michigan State University. I've been on staff here about 15 years, and I've been the curator of programs for the last 12. I'm also uh, the main researcher and
0: historian for our historic site here. Oh, very good. All right. Um, Now, how long has the Hawaiian Mission House been here?
1: Uh, Well, the first building on our campus was uh, built in 1821, Mm -hmm. and it's the oldest still standing house in Hawaii, and we've been open as
0: a museum since 1920. Okay, all right, very, very good. All right, now, my favorite house uh, on here, I mean, they're all very good, but my favorite one, of course, is the 1821 Mission House. It's unique, and I love it because it reminds me of being back in New England for a variety of reasons. Talk to us about this particular house. Uh, Yeah, so uh, we do
1: have three historic houses on our site here, one of which is the 1821 Mission House, which is the oldest still-standing house in the state. Uh, The original lumber for that house was actually uh, cut in New England Mm -hmm. and then shipped here as part of the Mission Supplies. Uh, the first of these uh, New England Protestant missionaries, mostly Presbyterians and Congregationalists, arrived in April of 1820. Mm-hmm. On a separate ship later on, uh, the wood for this house came um, as part of the supplies. The goal was for the uh, American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, or the ABCFM, uh, to uh, supply all of their material wants so they could focus on their mission and church work. Uh, so uh, the first family moved in there. They got permission to build it in May of eighteen twenty one, mm-hmm. and it was uh, the first family moved in in August of eighteen twenty one. The Daniel and Jerusha Chamberlain family, right. along with their kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we've tried really hard uh, to put it back the way it would have looked in the late eighteen twenties and early eighteen thirties, uh, when the missionaries were kind of uh, were. We're very, very active here at the site, and very active in uh, in their mission work, and so uh, it's really neat uh, that we've tr- we've put it back to that time period.
0: Indeed, indeed. Now, I'll tell you, I you know, um, many many years ago, I was an obsessive watcher of the Food Network, and I loved uh, to cook and things like that uh, when I was out here much more often than I am now. And the uh, thing is that uh, the kitchen is a real favorite of mine over at, um, at that house. It's quite unique. It has a very interesting history. And so talk to us about that. Yeah, so the kitchen that we still
1: have on our site uh, dates to the mid to late 1820s. Mm-hmm. It's made out of uh, coral blocks, which a good way to think about coral blocks is really, really young limestone yeah. uh, is a good way to think about it. Um, but at one point, there actually would have been three kitchens operating simultaneously for the 70 or so people that lived on the site mm-hmm. um, in, by the early 1830s. Uh, so we the kitchen has, it has a hearth. It has an oven, uh, what we call a beehive oven, uh, very similar to a brick oven pizza oven. And then uh, we also have a pantry in there. Uh, one of the neat features uh, when you enter into the kitchen uh, is our drip stones, yes. which are Uh, sandstone bowls, uh, they work just like a Brita pitcher, to be quite honest. And that's what they were used for, was for uh, cleaning water, for filtering water. And so uh, that's one of the neat things and the neat story we tell there in in that room is about, uh, this comes from Mrs. Judd's letters and journals, uh, Laura Fish Judd, and she remarks about uh, Hawaiians and Native Hawaiians and the elite, the chiefs and the royalty, bringing gifts of food to these missionaries. Um, and luckily for us, we actually have uh, Levi Chamberlain's account books. Uh, he was sorry of, he was the Superintendent of Secular Affairs, uh, Reed quartermaster and accountant on that job title. Uh, but we have sixty eight of his account books, and according to his account books, the elite, the chiefs and the royalty were bringing food to the Honolulu Mission station, on average, every other day for about for for over ten years. Wow. And I think that really shows the uh, closeness, friendliness, and cooperative relationship that the elite and the missionaries had uh, during this
0: time period. Mm-hmm, now a follow up to uh, to that because one of the it is Women's History Month now, and <laughs> the and the women that are listening to this I think are going to be um, uh, they're going to rush out here and try, uh, try to maybe uh, uh, find Hawaiian men or something. The reason why, of course, is because my understanding is that um, in in the in the old days it was the Hawaiian men that actually worked you know in the did the cooking and things like that of course things change talk to us about that if you would please yeah so traditionally
1: (laughs) in hawaiian society it was the men who did all the cooking um and this is for religious reasons relating to the uh old hawaiian uh polytheistic religion and so uh the first cooks that the missionaries had domestics as they would have called them uh were actually native hawaiian men um which was uh which is interesting but on the other hand you have to hire the people with the skills Um, And so, of course, during the 19th century, as Hawaiian uh, society and culture became more westernized, uh, those gender roles flopped to what we more uh, think of as as traditional gender roles in the Western Judeo-Christian world. Right, right.
0: Okay. Now, the most imposing of the mission houses uh, is the Chamberlain House, and it has a very unique history. Talk to us about its significance here.
1: Yeah, so this is the second of our historic houses. It dates to 1831. It's a three-story coral block building with a basement. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was uh, built by Levi Chamberlain and his wife, Mariah. Uh, Levi arrived here in 1823 with the 2nd Company of American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, Missionaries. Uh, and his, uh, his future wife, Mariah Patton, arrived in 1828 as a single woman, mm-hmm. uh, which was a bit of an oddity for the time. Most of the missionaries, especially the men, uh, were required to be married. And so, uh, but Mariah Patton came out here. They got married uh, towards the end of uh, 1828, and then uh, they built the Chamberlain House. Uh, so the, the family actually lived on the ground floor. They eventually had eight children. Wow. Um, and then the second and third floor was used as office space for the, uh, for the superintendents of secular affairs um, and his, for Levi and his assistants. Eventually those assistants became Amos Starr Cook and Samuel Northrop Castle. Oh, yes. Later and went on to found uh, the company Castle & Cook, which is today the parent company of Dole Fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, and it was also used for storage for mission supplies. Okay, yeah. um, one of the neat features of the house uh, is actually on the side of the house are these two doors mm-hmm. on the second and third floor that actually don't have stairs or don't go anywhere. They look like they just drop off the side of the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we know that those doors were used for p- pulling supplies into the house, mm-hmm. uh, crates and barrels, because the interior storeways were uh, uh, stairways were a bit uh, were narrow and short and hard to get big barrels and crates and things like that up there. So we actually have a drawing from 1851 by uh, James P. Chamberlain, one of Levi's sons, uh, showing a guy up in that third floor doorway hauling up a bag of supplies oh, wow, wow, up wow. on a pulley system up to that third floor. Yeah. Uh, So it was also uh, where the Mission Depository was, so a lot of their supplies were stored there. Um, And it is a rather imposing house, but it was used for much more than just the family. Mm -hmm. Later on, um, after uh, Levi dies in 1849 and his wife Mariah dies in 1880, um, it became a dormitory for Kavaiha'o Female Seminary, uh, Mm -hmm. sort of a women's high school that was across the street. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then uh, in 1907, uh, 1908 is when Uh, The Hawaiian Mission Children's Society, the nonprofit that owns and operates this museum today, um, acquired the property and became part of our, our historic
0: site. All right. Very very good. Now, what about the um, uh, the bedroom annex? There's uh, there's that. Yeah, talk to us about that. Yeah.
1: Right. So the bedroom annex is originally built as sort of a two room house uh, housing fixture for 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 more missionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, it dates to 1841. It's also made out of coral block. But unlike the Chamberlain House, which has a plaster facade on it to make it look like New England brickwork, yeah. um, the coral blocks of the bedroom annex uh, were were just whitewashed over basically. Uh, today we use that space to interpret uh, Kahalipa'i, the House of Printing, or the Printing Office, Mm -hmm. and the the story of uh, the development of written Hawaiian and the astronomical uh, rise to literacy that Native Hawaiians had in the 19th century, going from having no written language at all Mm -hmm. uh, to Reverend Richard Armstrong in 1853 uh, as the Minister of Public Instruction, uh, estimating that 75% of all Hawaiians uh, had learned how to read and write in their own language, in Hawaiian. Um, And so uh, that's where we tell that story And we also had the neat thing in there though Is our replica of the very first printing press Mm -hmm. uh, To come here to Hawaii in 1820 With the first group of missionaries And so it is an operational replica Mm -hmm. Uh, We do have a lot of school groups And and kids that get to use the printing press And do printing on it um, And learn about this uh, really phenomenal story That really didn't occur the way it did here Anywhere else in the world
0: you know, indeed, it is true. A lot of people, and especially my listeners um, over on the, in Greenwich in the East Coast area, may not realize, but Hawaii was actually maybe what, maybe 120 years ago or, or, or so, was considered one of the most literate places in the entire world. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Um, now, so yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, at a at a period where um, you know where literacy is is really. Um, Not such a focus of things, even education. I I mean, uh, Hawaii had this remarkable rise. And it wasn't just the missionaries um, that really pushed it, even though they really uh, wanted to because of their Protestant beliefs, uh, that you have to be able to at least be able to read Scripture for yourself. But it's something that the Hawaiian elite also wanted, the chiefs and royalty. Matter of fact, it's one of the uh, uh, demands that the king, that King Kamehameha II makes when these missionaries land, and see. And one of the demands he makes uh, for them to be able to stay was, "I want you to teach my people to read and write, and I want you to do it in my language." Missionaries kind of sort of went, "Well, we want to do that anyway," Um, and so this is a case where you have the same goal from two different uh, reasons. And this is really one of the beginnings of this collaborative relationship uh, between the elite and the missionaries in the 1820s. But yeah, in an era where, you know, a literacy rate of of 50 to 70 percent was considered astronomical at the time. Uh, I mean, you got to think, is that in the mid-19th century, the United States had a literacy rate around 40 to 45%, especially if you factor in the slave population at the time. Yes. Um, and where most of Europe is uh, averages out to about 65% of the time, higher in Protestant countries, lower in Catholic countries um, at the time. Uh, to the point where in the mid, by the mid-1880s, literacy here in Hawaiian um, is virtually universal, yes. which is something that most other uh, societies wouldn't, wouldn't have happened until the 20th century. Indeed, indeed.
0: Now, there is a cemetery across the street um, behind Kauai Church. Tell us about that, too. Right, so uh, the Mission Memorial Cemetery
1: is is between us and uh, uh, Kavaiaha'o Church, which was the headquarters church of the missionaries, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, considered the mother church. and uh, was the Church of the Royal Family, sometimes called the Westminster Abbey of the Pacific because of its association with the Hawaiian royalty. Um, but the... Um, The cemetery, uh, this is kind of interesting that we just started doing an interpretive project in there Mm -hmm. uh, where we uh, have a QR code a handout Mm -hmm. uh, where people can get short biographies and pictures of some of the people, uh, some of the residents of the Mission Memorial Cemetery. Uh, It's really interesting that we actually have an exact uh, founding date for that. Uh, when Levi Parsons Bingham, one of the uh, Bingham's first children, mm-hmm. um, dies at around the age of sixteen days, oh, wow. um, and uh, the missionaries write in their journals that uh, they had to go to the chiefs, the elite, to ask for a place to bury their dead, and so they designated this plot behind uh, uh, behind Kuwayahao Church, and that became the mission cemetery. Uh, today, it is still an active cemetery under our care, um, and to, in order to be Uh, in earned there. Uh, today you have to be a direct lineal descendant of one of these missionaries that came over here from New England. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we still have active uh burials going on there. Uh, and we all but this uh interpreter project I think is really
0: neat. Yeah, I think I, I think it sounds fantastic. Now, this place. Is more than a museum; it is also an archive, and you've got incredible programs here. Mm-hmm. So, um, spend a couple of minutes and, and talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, yeah our archives um, consist of mostly uh, materials uh, either written uh, by or about these missionaries, uh, and their and either by or about their descendants. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have many of the missionary letters, journals, uh, re, you know, reports back to uh, the American Board. Uh, we have a letter a collection of elite letters written by the elite to these missionaries mm-hmm. uh, everything from uh, you know one of the elite needs a new pair of shoes to statements of faith yes. uh, that the Hawaiian elite are making back to the folks in Boston mm-hmm. uh, and we've also made great stride and we also have one of the largest collections of Hawaiian language printed material in the world mm-hmm. uh, because of all the printing that these missionaries did and so We've taken great pains over the last 10 to 12 years to uh, digitize quite a bit. And we've digitized well over 80, somewhere between 80 and 100,000 pages out of our archives, uh, which are available on our website under our library and archives tab, uh, Mission Houses, uh, missionhouses.org. And uh, can be accessed 24-7, 365. Mm-hmm. All
0: right very good you know I uh, I have more a couple of more questions as we start to uh, to close down but I I do want to take this opportunity to say this when I arrived here in March 1995 uh, in fact we just passed my anniversary date <laughs> um, you know and and, and uh, I have to tell you that the staff here when I told them why I was here and why and uh, and all they were extraordinarily, uh, there was a lot of aloha there um, Which I would expect of course But the other thing is the professionalism And the care that they take uh, To preserve and, um, uh, these, uh, these materials I mean I found journals That were written by the Greenwich uh, uh, based uh, or Born missionaries you know, Horton Owen Knapp mm-hmm. and Charlotte uh, uh, Close Knapp who later became Mrs. Daniel Dole And um, James William Smith and his, uh, his Wife uh, Millicent who went over to Kauai You know, I was spellbound by what I found. And I saw in the original books, in, you know, quill pen manuscript and all that, descriptions of their voyages from, you know, Boston uh, to, you know, going around uh, Cape Horn at the uh, bottom of of South America and and coming up and just the extraordinary letters that were written. Uh, I I found a lot about the abolitionist movements Mm -hmm. by coming here Mm -hmm. to this place and I was just, uh, it was just incredible what I found. So I want my listeners and, and others to know, and I want you to know how grateful I am, hmm. uh, continuing to be grateful uh, to uh, to the wonderful work that this place does. As we start to close, let me just, well, oh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I'd <laughs> like to add into that, yeah. Jeffrey, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. is that, you know, um,
1: it's really neat, the, the windows you get into, oh. you know, the windows you get to look into yes. uh, by reading this archival material. And I think one of the things that our archive shows yes. Um, is is the world was much more interconnected than we like to think the past Indeed, was. Indeed, yes. Uh, and there was a lot of commerce, a lot of uh, letter writing, um, and a lot of stuff going on uh, between uh, Hawaii and the East Coast and other parts of the world. I mean, the, uh, the Hawaiian Kingdom had a diplomatic presence all over the United States and all over the world where uh, you know, ministers of the Hawaiian of the Hawaiian Kingdom would go uh, attend like crowning of czars, yes. um, and to visit the royal courts of Europe in the in the in the nineteenth century. And they wrote back reports and and wrote back and wrote stuff for the newspapers here. And you know, I think one of those one of the things that um, that I think the digitization project really brings home. So we think of our world as a very uh, close and internet connected place today. Yeah. Um, it was no no less so
0: in the past. Indeed, 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 um, it really was. You know, and, and before I get to my uh, final two questions, let me mention this too. If I could, I want to say thank you to you and to the others here at the um, uh, at the Hawaiian Mission, uh, you know, Children's Society and the Mission Houses Museum. You remember that I was teaching at Hawaii Tokai International mm-hmm. College. It's the um, you know the uh, Japanese based um, you know uh, college uh, in. Uh, uh, that, that used to be over on Kapilani Boulevard Now they're up in um, in Kapolei And one of the projects that we did That this place was very instrumental in helping us with Was that we found out that the original Japanese embassy That came from the Tokugawa Shogunate mm-hmm. And all that, that came to the United States They initially went to San Francisco Nobody realized it, including me Was that they stopped here first in Hawaii mm. and they um, had audience with uh, I think it was Kamehameha III and uh, Queen Emma uh, was it? I, uh,
1: I, it depends you... on what year it Yeah, was. I know
0: it depends on what year it was around 1859 1860.
1: Uh, that would have been uh, Kamehameha IV. Yes,
0: exactly. Yeah. And the the thing is that the the staff here were so extraordinarily helpful not only to me but to the students by the way who's English is their second language, mm-hmm. um, and all, and we were able to do some great things with that. Let me let me go on. We could go on forever, of course, but um, I wanted to know if you could do um, uh, this before we um, we start to close. I want you to know uh, or summarize for us. You actually have already done this in a way. Is how the Hawaiian Mission houses this place, those who worked and lived here changed the course not only really of the United States, but also of Hawaii and really the uh, the world. Talk to us about that, mm-hmm. if you could. I know, you know it's
1: hard. Yeah, that. that's, a, that's a big <laughs> ball of wax to open there, Jeffrey. Um, Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, really, um, you cannot talk about the changes in Hawaiian culture, society, government, and relations with the outside world uh, without talking about the influence of these missionaries. Yes. Um, uh, who are mostly Presbyterians and Congregationalists. And um, they played such an important part in Hawaiian history in the 19th century um, that it's really impossible. Uh, to talk about those changes without these folks The, the, the collaborative relationship In areas like uh, of course Christianity, literacy and education uh, Later on the idea of constitutional Government yes. as the Hawaiian kingdom Had to uh, confront a 19th century, 19th century Militarily imperialistic world Look for new strategies to survive In this world yes. And so the, the elite and the missionaries actually Partnered in these areas uh, To uh, help modernize mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, change Hawaiian society to better be able to deal with the wider world around them. Indeed. And so, but the thing to remember about all those changes is that um, it's really the elite, the chiefs and the royalty, who are making these final decisions. Yes, They're certainly asking input from these missionaries, uh, asking for advice. Um, and things like that, but uh, but in the end, it's the it's the native wines themselves who made these decisions yes. uh, to to change the you know to change how they interact with the world and to change their society yeah. um, in the nineteenth century. And their in these missionaries' influence is way outsized to their actual numbers um, over the course of uh, about f- about forty eight years. About two hundred people come here uh, came here as missionaries in twelve separate companies, as we call them, or groups. Um, but you know, but their influence is way outsized compared to their actual numbers, Indeed. and I think expo- exploring more of this collaborative relationship in the first 20 to 30 years in the mission, I think, uh, warrants further
0: investigation by historians. Oh, absolutely. And if I if I may, before I get to my final question, of course. What about, because we're emerging from a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic, what about the influence or the collaboration, really, between the Hawaiians and the missionaries, especially Dr. Judd, who mm-hmm. comes to mind? If you could talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah Dr.
1: Judd, uh, Dr. Garrett P. Judd, he's from upstate New York, um, and he uh, he was actually one of the few Western doctors here at the time uh, who was actually interested in Hawaiian medicine. Yes. Um, And in addition to teaching native, uh, his native Hawaiian students Western medicine, uh, he took the time to actually have them teach him about um, Hawaiian medicine. And, you know, 19th century medical practice uh, between Kuhuna Laa Lapa'au, Hawaiian medical practitioners, and someone like Dr. Judd, um, was actually not, the practices themselves were actually weren't terribly different from each other. Uh, basically, you're all trying to. Do, they were all trying to do the same thing, which is either trying to purge, trying to make your patient vomit, uh, trying to control pain, um, and or trying to make them sweat. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Um, and Dr. Judd did. And uh, uh, they were all using uh, plant plant materials yeah. as medicine. Yeah. Uh, The one big, the one, the two big differences between Western medicine and Hawaiian medicine in the early to mid 19th century is that Western doctors tended to use more chemicals. Um, They also did surgery. Hawaiians did not do surgery uh, due to the beliefs about uh, mana or power that's in the body. Um, So those are kind of the big differences. But Dr. Judd uh, published the first medical textbook in the Hawaiian language. And he didn't just translate a Western medical textbook, he actually reworked several different texts, and then rewrote the book, um, in, in originally in Hawaiian. Yes, yes. Um, he also went on to found um, uh, the first Western medical school here in 1870 at the request of the royal government. The school lasted about two years, uh, graduated 10 native Hawaiian students. Uh, they, be, they became licensed physici- physicians, uh, what we might call uh, country doctors today, making yep. house calls and the like. Uh, But Dr. Judd was also involved in the formation of of the Hawaiian Kingdom's Board of Health uh, during the 1853 smallpox epidemic, Um, along with Dr. Hillebrand, a German doctor that was living here, and several others. Uh, But uh, King Kamehameha III did something um, uh, really uh, far reaching, I think, and really um, uh, very different for the time period that he instituted a mass kingdom wide. Uh, multi-island mass vaccination and inoculation program against smallpox of which many of the missionary schools and mission stations and churches became vaccination or inoculation centers Mm Um, and Dr. Judd had a very big hand in that, yes. um, in establishing those centers. Uh, he was also looking at uh, producing homegrown uh, vaccine material, which would have been uh, scabs from cowpox victims, mm-hmm. um, to the point where him and Dr. Hillbrand actually tried to infect Dr. Judd's personal dairy herd uh, <laughs> with cowpox um, in order to be to give purposely give people cowpox, which is very you can't die from even if you try. Yeah. Um, But on the other hand It does protect you against smallpox uh, Which is much more deadly And that's of course what uh, the British doctor Dr. Jenner discovered in the 1790s That milkmaids who got cowpox Didn't get smallpox Mm. It was much safer uh, than trying to uh, Find a weakened form of smallpox To inoculate people with um, so Dr. Judd had a very big hand in that, in, in, in establishing those vaccination and inoculation centers.
0: Excellent. Final question. Promise. <laughs> Final question. How can our listeners learn more about this extraordinary place?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, for those of you on the East Coast, uh, the best way is probably through our website, www.missionhouses.org. Um, and you can come visit us here in Honolulu Tuesday through Saturday. Uh, we have tours, uh, five, days a week uh, which you can also book through our website Mm -hmm. Um, we also uh, under our library library and archives page uh, have all those digital collections uh, which not only include those documents i talked about earlier but also photographs uh, daguerreotypes ambrotypes um, those types, tin types and those kinds of things as well. Uh, so that's the probably the easiest way unless you come here to Honolulu and come visit us yourselves uh, which of course everyone is
0: more than welcome to do. Uh, well you know what, I'm working on that, I'm working on that. Uh, I really want to bring as many of my listeners as possible here to Hawaii and we are working on something to, to do that. Mike Smola of the um, Hawaiian Mission Houses uh, Historic Site and Archives, Mahalanui Loa, Hawaiian Mission Houses Nuka'oi. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well (laughs) mahalo for having me Jeffrey it's a pleasure to get a chance to talk to to uh, your listeners on the on the east coast there so uh, mahalo for having me and of course aloha
0: You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander. Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, my friends, it's time for crimes and misdemeanors. Of course, this is the continued celebration and observance of the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. Today's crime dates from 1908 Um, and this is a rather interesting one and it's rather detailed uh, so um, this might I'm going to try to keep this as concise as possible, Uh, but it concerns a couple of gentlemen of that time who uh, lived in Greenwich, one of them named David Farrington, the other one named Emil Boas, B-O-A-S. Um, this concerns trespass on private property, but also the licensing of dogs. Uh, that is still an issue that uh, we uh, contend with even in the early 21st century. And so without any further ado, I'm just going to, um, to get into it for you. Uh, this dates from February 21st, 1908. And the headline is, was fined for trespass. David Farrington paid $5, but it will cost Emil Boas $10 for licenses. And the subheadline is Standwich Farmer While Hunting on Land of Steamship Manager Shot Dog in Self Defense, and his arrest followed. As a sequel, three of Mr. Boas's valuable dogs were taken up by Dog Warden Jones and held for payment of licenses. <laughs> goes as follows David Farrington, a farmer of Standwich, was fined $5 and costs for trespassing on the land of Emil Boas, B O A S, of course as I mentioned before, of North Street on Tuesday morning. A charge was also made against Mr. Farrington for cruelty to animals, but this charge was not sustained. It appeared from the evidence that Mr. Farrington with two other men went out for hunting on Tuesday. His dogs got on the trail of the fox and led him to a tract of meadow land known as, quote-unquote, the hook. That's H-O-O-K. A part of this track is owned by Mr. Boas, and it was thither that the dogs ran. While Mr. Farrington was investigating what appeared to be a foxhole, two men in the employ of Mr. Boas came near They had with them a bulldog, which Mr. Farrington alleged, ran toward him barking and growling furiously. Mr. Farrington said that he was frightened by the animal's fierce aspect, and he turned and fired a a charge of birdshot at him. The dog was severely wounded in the head. It was stated out of court... That the bulldog bit one of Mr. Farrington's dogs and that Mr. Farrington made the remark, quote, I'll fix him so he won't do that again, unquote, as he fired. Mr. Boas was very angry at the occurrence and a complaint was immediately made to the prosecuting attorney. As a sequel to the trespass charge, three dogs belonging to Emil Boas were taken up by the dog warden Barrett Jones as being unlicensed, and Mr. Boas will have to pay their licenses before he can get them. A man who said he was a uh, he was over uh, of uh, let's see oh a man who said who he was over of fair play heard the case and reported the matter to the dog warden. He was impressed by the honesty and conscientiousness of Mr. Farrington, who, when the shooting took place, was within a few feet of Cornelius Mead's land, and there were no witnesses very near, might have been easily said, and that he was not on Mr. Boas's land at all. Several people have since told stories as to the fierceness of the bulldog in question. One said that the Dog followed his team recently and snapping at the blanket, which was hanging, was dragged 30 feet before he let go. And a lady reports having her dress torn by the dog as she was passing by. Now, there is a second part of this article. This was, of course, that I just read to you was published on February 21st, 1908 in the Greenwich News News. But there's more, um, and this comes from the February 28th, 1908 edition of the Greenwich News. Mr. Boas decided to write an article, or rather a letter, my, uh, my, I stand corrected, to the editors of the Greenwich News uh, with his side of the story. For the readers um, in Greenwich, and I suppose elsewhere, Mr. Boas' this is an explanation, letter telling the trouble with David Farrington. The following letter, and this is, of course, a week after the first one that I just read to you, from Emil Boas explaining the trouble with David Farrington, who was arrested for trespassing on Boas's place and for shooting Mr. Boas's dog. The news cheerfully publishes this newspaper, always wishes to present both sides of any question. Well, how about that? February 25th, 1908, to the editor of the Greenwich News, Greenwich, Connecticut, dear sir. According to a story which appeared in your last week's issue. A hunter who had come on my place with his hounds for the purpose of fox hunting was attacked by a bulldog belonging to me. The dog growled furiously and was so frightened the hunter by its fierce aspect that he shot it, severely wounding it in the head, etc. When I heard the story and its sequel, I did not know exactly whether to laugh or to be angry. On the one hand, the distortion of facts was ridiculous. On the other, it put me in the wrong, although I was the injured party. The facts are that a man living a mile or two from my place came on my property with his hounds, and while fox hunting was apparently annoyed by my dog, a little pet terrier, not by far as large as the average fox. This was, quote-unquote, the bulldog of fierce aspect, unquote, anyone seeing my little dog described as such would roar with laughter i think it was absolutely wanton to shoot our little pet in the head a man with a gun and hounds was has surely other means of warding off a small dog after the shooting my caretaker telephoned the facts to my lawyer who took such steps as seemed to him proper to prevent a recurrence. Your article reads as if somehow or other I were in the wrong and since I am most sincerely desirous of living in peace with my neighbors or for that matter with everybody, I should very much like to know what is the proper thing to do in such cases. Must my dogs be locked up when somebody wants to hunt on my property? Of course, the dogs in their loyal hearts may have the idea that a man they do not know, coming with a do- with dogs and a gun, has no business on the property of their master. And I must keep away all other animals that might annoy trespassing hunters. I must confess that I may have been negligent in this respect in leaving my animals at large on my place. Such negligence is perhaps pardonable, but as it might be, "'casually, easily rather, lead to leaving children in the path of hunters, "'I take the liberty of suggesting that hunters issue due notice to their neighbors "'so that not only animals but human beings are kept indoors "'in order not to interfere with the sport.' that i had no licenses for my dogs was simply for the reason that i never knew there was such a thing as a dog license ordinance my place is 4 miles from the village and i live on it only from april to july and september to december this is this this to my great regret as i wish for nothing better than i could be there all the year round I enjoy it so much, but I am a very busy man and have only hours at my place where I would like to have days. This may explain why I never heard of the ordinance. No one ever called my attention to it, not even other dog owners. I trust neither you or anyone else will think that I did not comply with the ordinance in order to save the early tax ...of the ordinance, or a little over a dollar per dog. I shall most certainly see to it that the ordinance is observed in the future. In conclusion, please, please, excuse me, in conclusion, permit me to um, uh, report to the, quote, ...lover of fair play, unquoting your story, who is apparently of the opinion that a man has a right to come on my place with his hounds and shoot my little pet dog, and that I was wronged in objecting to it. I, too, am a lover of fair play, and I am very much interested to learn by what process of reasoning your friend came to his conclusion. Yours truly, Emil L. Boas. And that was published in the Greenwich News on February 28th, 1908. I don't know if anything happened with this, so I'm I'm assuming that maybe uh, those in authority and those involved in all of this just decided to simply let the matter go. You never know, but um, this echoes uh, even some uh, uh, complaints that people have about trespassing in dogs and uh, without leashes and licenses and things like that that we still contend with, uh, although on a much uh, lesser scale, in the early years of the 21st century. Well, on today's show, I'm going to share with you a column that was written by Lucian Edwards of the Greenwich News and Graphic under the column Greenwich Life as it is and was. This particular column was written, or I should say published, on January 12, 1923, a little over 100 years ago. The title of this is Coscop as a Residential Section, Its Rapid Growth in Recent Years. I wanted to share this with you because there's a, a bit of a personal Uh, relationship that I have uh, with um, one of the main people in this piece, and her name is Carolyn Mead. So um, let me share this with you. I think you'll find this interesting. A few years ago, when the fine school building, that would be Coscop School, costing $100,000 was completed for the Coscop School District, comment was made that the building anticipated the school needs by many years. It was before the Great War that the building was put up and $100,000 was considered a large amount for the town to expend for a school building for a section of town having comparatively few boys and girls of school age as Koskab and Mayanus had at the time, for it had been decided to do away with a school building in Mayanus, the school needs of what was formerly the Mayanna School District being provided for by the Sound Beach and Koskab School accommodations. The big building in Koskab had a capacity of housing at least 600 scholars, and though so short a time has passed, the town is now asked for an appropriation to enlarge the Koskab School building as it is overcrowded, surprising as this statement may seem. But Kaskab has grown in population rapidly in recent years, and many former residents of the borough have their homes now in Kaskab. The borough, by the way, would refer to uh, the downtown area of Greenwich. Back to the story. Attracted there by the great advantages afforded by home seekers to locate there. Mm-hmm. Until recent years, the increase in number of inhabitants of Koskab was very small from year to year. A few moderate-cost homes would be built every year, mostly for the men employed in the Palmer's Brothers' works and in other industries located in that section, for homes for them and their families. So little change in the conditions took place, making Koskab from year to year. There were some revolutionary houses that attracted attention, Notably, the Timpany Cottage, the Bush House, that would refer to the Bush-Holly House, for many years kept as a summer boarding house by the late E.P. Holly, which was a popular place for artists to spend their vacation, occupying their time in painting and sketching the picturesque scenery so conspicuous in many parts of Kascob, And the Bush Homestead, of which the Putnam Trust Company has had a picture taken, copies of which have been placed on the calendar issued by the bank for distribution among its customers. A brief historical sketch of this old house and store that were built in 1760, 16 years before the Declaration of Independence was adopted, printed on small slips of paper that are attached to the calendar, giving it additional value. To any persons who are so fortunate as to possess one who are interested in the old historical houses of Greenwich. The old house and store are fast falling to pieces, and in a few years at most will be no more one of Koskab's most famous landmarks. The drift of new residents to Koskab really began when the owners of Round Hill Farms sold them to wealthy New Yorkers for suburban estates and moved to Kaskob to live 10 or 12 years, or perhaps a little longer ago than that. Robert L. Chamberlain was one of the first of the former Roundhill far- farmers to locate there. Mr. Chamberlain bought a large building lot on Mead Avenue, Coscob's Fifth Avenue, where he had an attractive house built, where he has since made his home. Lyman Ferris, whose farm was in Stanwich, was the next. He bought a cottage located on Mead Avenue, where he has since resided. Nehemiah Houston was another, and he bought and occupied a fine place on the Strickland Road, and there were some others. Before what might be called the boom, quote-unquote, in Coss Gabriel Estate began, land was cheap in that section. A distance showing for what low prices Kauskab land could be bought was the purchase of the triangular plot extending from near the present location of the Kauskab School to Diamond Hill, having a frontage of more than 500 feet on two streets, for $500. Several homes have been built on the tract, and the land today is easily worth $5,000. The house on the easterly end was occupied for a time by Deputy Sheriff James Fitzroy, father of borough policemen Robert and James Fitzroy. He was probably the cleverest sleuth that ever made an arrest in Greenwich. His capture of a burglar who had entered the cottage next to the Dunson Building on Putnam Avenue, occupied by Miss Tibley White and her mother after a long chase to Glenville, The burglar, having hidden under the bridge, single-handed, gave him national reputation at the time. Mr. Poindexter afterwards lived in the house. Standing some thirty feet in front of the site of the Koskab school was an enormous oak. It must have been at least thirty feet in circumference at the base, and about twenty feet from the ground great branches spread their sheltering limbs for years, for the tree must have been more than one hundred years. Old, It had stood there longer than the memory of Koskab's oldest inhabitant, who was ninety years old, and it was a veritable landmark. The branches rotted from age and were removed until nothing but the trunk of the tree remained, and this was blown down because of weakness at the base due to the same cause." Situated to the northwest of the oak, about 40 feet away, was the old revolutionary house, then the home of Mrs. Carolyn Meade, a widow who owned many acres of the adjoining land. After Mrs. Meade built and occupied a house on the post road near Mead Avenue, the old homestead was for a number of years the home of Mrs. James Beecher, sister-in-law of Henry Ward Beecher, who kept a young ladies' seminary there. And if I may cut in here, the uh, paragraph mentions uh, about this home that Carolyn Mead built, uh, occupying a house, as it says, on the Post road near Mead Avenue. That house still remains today. If you go to Dunkin' Donuts uh, over on East Putnam Avenue uh, near the intersection with uh, uh, Orchard Street, uh, peer over to the eastern side or the left side of uh, Dunkin' Donuts, and you will see the house. It is still there. To Mrs. Mead, who may be said to have been one of the pioneer real estate developers of Greenwich, should be given much credit for the building up of Cosgob. She had her land surveyed, mapped into building lots, that she sold on very reasonable and easy terms. And it wasn't long before she placed the lots on the market before several attractive cottages were being built and occupied as soon as completed. Mrs. Mead was a very clever businesswoman, and although advanced in years, carried on her real estate deals with unusual ability. Since she opened up her land, many houses have been built, and new families have come to Cascaba to occupy them. And the grand list of the town increased many thousands of dollars by reason of Mrs. Meade's developing her farmland into building lots. Now uh, the the story concludes there, but let me tell you that uh, Carolyn Mills Smith Mead, I think she would be my great 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 grand aunt. Her brother was George Jackson Smith, um, who for uh, a period of time owned what we know today as the Bush Holly House. Um, in fact, um, the Smiths, when they owned that property, ran the house as a boarding house for railroad workers uh, who were building the railroads, of course. At the time, it is said that the uh, that the double porches as well as the uh, the tall windows uh, on the ground floor of what we know today as Bush-Holly House were the response, were the responsibility of the um, of the Smiths. Uh, that came from um, my good friend, the deceased town historian William E. Finch Jr. I'll have more uh, news about Mrs. Carolyn Mill Smith Mead in future podcasts, including. A very, very unique and special project that I am working on regarding her, and um, I, I think that uh, you're going to find this very, very interesting. Uh, and um, I'll have more news about that in um, in future shows. So stay tuned for that. <music> One of the great blessings that Greenwich, Connecticut has is a fantastic public library system. I want to take you back in time in history to February 26, 1881. This is an editorial that was published in the Greenwich Observer, which was Greenwich's first homegrown newspaper it was um, the proprietor was someone with a name I'm very familiar with and that would be John K. (laughs) Mead the proprietor Um, and this was published on Saturday February 26 1881 and the headline says needs of the reading room and and library and it goes as follows some account was given in these columns a few weeks ago of the work directly and indirectly done through the instrumentality of the reading room and library during the last year. It was shown there beyond all dispute that the use of this well-equipped reading room and carefully selected library is an educating influence in this community, which cannot be overrated. The figures presented, however, tell only half the story, and the most superficial part is at that, what the ministry Of these books is, in homes that are full of care and sickness, what their power is in stimulating and giving directions to aimless lives cannot be gathered from figures nor put into print. If it is difficult to convey a just impression of the intellectual influence of such an institution, much more is it difficult to measure its moral power. Few people have probably thought that the reading room is the only rival of the drinking salons of Greenwich in supplying a comfortable room for young men and boys, but that is nevertheless the fact. And if for no other reason than the good the reading room is doing in this direction, it ought to have the cordial support of every resident who takes an interest in the young men of Greenwich who are coming on to make up its population and carry on its enterprises. Remember, this is 1881 in in that room, well-lighted and comfortably furnished. And with the attraction of good reading as a perpetual magnet, there is a center from which a thoroughly good work is being done as against the liquor temptation. Our churches seem to take very little account of the needs and natural inclinations of our young men. And the reading room and library is the only organization that offers them any attractions or makes any place for them. On this account, if on no other people ought not to begrudge the amount which is every year necessary to meet its expenses and enlarge its usefulness. Toward this end, a more systematic effort is to be made and every citizen of the place will have the opportunity to make a subscription for the support of the library. A generous response is hoped for and will doubtless be made. See, it all started even back then, our appreciation of public libraries. And may it continue in generations to come. Back in March of 1907, secession was literally in the air, said a editorial that uh, appeared in the Greenwich News. It was published on March 1st of 1907. Um, We hear about these things happening once in a while in uh, different jurisdictions, um, and this was something that uh, was the case here in uh, Greenwich at the time. The editorial states the following, secession is in the air, and there is nothing so contagious as secession. Sound Beach has set the example by proposing to secede from Greenwich. Now a large portion of Riverside, at least that part represented by wealthy New Yorkers, has seceded from Sound Beach, which of course is old Greenwich today, and are to present a counter-petition to the legislature asking that the request for separation presented by the Sound Beachers Be disregarded. The next thing likely to happen is that some part of Riverside, not composed of New York property owners, will secede from the ranks of Riverside and present a petition in opposition to the other Riversville petition. The Sound Beach people will find that the business of secession is one that works both ways, and that when you have established the precedent of withdrawing from the larger body because everything does not go satisfactorily, you have sown the seeds for your own destruction. The movement today is towards growth and unification. It is the tendency for towns and municipalities to take, take in more and more separatism and disintegration have little place in modern political economy. If you drive on East Putnam at Putnam Avenue going from Cob to Riverside, and you glance over to the left without um, averting your eyes too much from from the road. Um, you will see, of course, uh, the Mianus River Dam that um, is just to the north of the of the bridge off of East Putnam Avenue. Believe it or not, there was a time when um, there were people that were not exactly um, all for. The building of that dam, and um, there is uh, a piece that I found uh, published on uh, Friday, March 1st, 1907, in the Greenwich News that um, attests uh, to that. It's a little bit of the history of that dam, and, uh, and of the Mayanus River, of course. And the headline on this says, Don't Damn It. <laughs> uh, D-I-M, of course, um, is, um, is how it's spelled. Witnesses heard on injunction against damming minus River. And it goes as follows. The hearing on the injunction placed by John M. Williams and others against the damming of the Mianus River by the New York, New Haven, and Harlem Railroad in order to get a water supply for its powerhouse in Coscob, where, by the way, Cosgob Park is today, came before Judge Ralph Wheeler in the Superior Court in Bridgeport last Monday. The contractors are the defendants in the case, but as the consolidated road are the actual builders of the dam, they are the defendants in reality. When the contractors began to build the dam last fall, several residents of this town, headed by John M. Williams, who owned a valuable estate above the proposed dam, opposed the work of building a new dam, and prayed out a temporary injunction, which was granted by Judge Shumway. The motion now was to dissolve the injunction, Attorney Schofield, former mayor of Stamford, was counsel for the plaintiff and attorney William Boardman is looking after the interests of the consolidated. The testimony brought out by the plaintiffs was that there was always a dam at this point in controversy, but the dam was a low one which did not interrupt navigation of small boats going further up the river. At high tide, the water was from 18 inches to two feet above the dam and small boats could easily get up. When it was low tide, boatmen had to use skids to uh, pass the dam, either going up or down. The testimony showed that the oystermen in that section gathered from uh, natural oyster beds, both above and below the dam, and also planted seedlings in a pond above the dam. This industry has been enjoyed and was a source of revenue time out of mind. Also fish of the saltwater variety have been caught above the dam. There was plenty of evidence on those points. One witness testified that he towed up a two-ton scow behind his powerboat over the dam, the scow carrying a load of timber. Dr. L.P. Jones testified that the building of the dam there, as proposed by the defendants, would be a detriment to the health of the community. The new dam would form a settling basin for the accumulation of the refuse from up the river. It would, in his opinion, become a breeding place for mosquitoes and for malaria. As it is now, the salt water flows above the present low dam, flushes it out, and keeps the locality healthy. The doctor told of his experience with the dam on the Byram River. There was an agitation to do away with the dam, similarly to the one in question. The New York State authorities dilly-dallied so long that he got a gang of men and tore down the dam on the Connecticut side and settled the vexed question offhand. Since that time, the health of that part of the town has been greatly improved. John M. Williams testified that if the proposed dam is built by the defendants, that it will be an actual damage to him. It will destroy the oyster grounds and the fishing and will detract from the residential value of his property." And that concludes the article. And, well, how did things turn out? Well, obviously you will see that the, the dam was uh, greatly enlarged and heightened. And so uh, those who tried to, to stop that from happening, obviously, did not prevail. <laughs> You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander. Landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. A century ago, here in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, there was a time when the town was actually a center for publishing one of the areas of publishing was, of course, over in Old Greenwich, and that was the establishment of what was known as the Arbor Press, a printing plant that the building still exists today. If any of you go to the Hyatt Regency off of East Putnam Avenue, just before you drive over um, the Stamford Line, uh, the building is um, is pretty much uh, still there. It would eventually become the headquarters for Condé Nast. Uh, but back in, um, in uh, 1920, um, it was the printing plant uh, and publishing uh, quarters for Arbor press and I'd like to uh, share with you the, um, the announcement of the opening and the description of what that was like this was published in the Greenwich News and graphic on Friday December 26 1919 um, and the headline says big Arbor press printing plant ready um, there's a there's a rough illustration here it doesn't look very good on the uh, uh, on, on the uh, electronic uh, screen, but oh well, what are you going to do? Anyway, um, operations will begin in the new building at Sound Beach within the next two weeks. And the story goes as follows Manufacturing operations will begin within the next two weeks in the new printing plant on Boston Post Road between Greenwich and Stamford. The building will house the production department of the printing business of Douglas C. McMurtry conducted under the corporate name of the Arbor Press. The building is now being completed, will bring together printing machinery formerly formerly operated at two widely separated addresses in New York City. There is also being added considerably considerable new equipment to meet the needs of the various departments and to increase the volume of annual production. Structures believed to be the most modern in design and completeness in terms of detail of any printing plant in the United States erected by the Turner construction company, it is built of reinforced concrete with maximum expanse of steel window sash thus affording a wealth of light for the workers. The building stands on a Ridge commanding a fine view of the Boston post road as high land as any point in this part of the state. The altitude makes for atmospheric conditions as dry as possible, a most important feature for a printing plant in which dampness affects adversely the paper being handled. The architectural feature of the building is a four story tower which will house the administrative offices. The three wings in which manufacturing operations will be carried on are but one story in height. In a short wing running east from the tower and parallel to the Boston Post Road will be located the composing room. Here the setting type, the first process in printing a book, will be carried on. The wing is subdivided by partitions to give separate rooms for proofreading monotype keyboard work and monotype uh, uh, casting. A large wing running back from the center of the building is the cylinder press room. The feature of this room, unique among printing plans in this country, is a gallery running down the center. There is an electric elevator between this gallery and the main floor. The height of the gallery is determined by the level at which paper is fed into the cylinder process, and the novel arrangement permits the handling of sheets with the minimum of labor. Above the gallery is a monitor roof, which admits a supply of light in the center of the room, in addition to which comes through the large windows along the sides. Every press, as well as every other item of mechanical equipment, is driven by an individual electric motor. The power wires leading to the process runs through conduits placed under the floors before the concrete service was laid. For every press, there is an automatic feeder, a remarkable device which picks up a single sheet of paper at a time and delivers it to the press for printing at just the right moment, and in exactly the correct position. These feeders make for increased production and accurate work. The third wing of the main building, running out toward the south, will be devoted to the bindery. Here, the printed sheets are folded on automatic machines. Four folders constitute the initial installation. In the next process, girls working at tables gather together one each of the folded sheets, making up a completed book. The next stage consists of binding these folded sheets together, either on wire stitching machines or on special sewing machines. The two final stages involve... Let's see, we have to turn the page here. Involve, involving uh, the, the edges of the book and heavy-cutting machines, and putting on the cover. Which of these processes comes first depends on the style of the binding. That's interesting. A separate room in the bindery wing is devoted to packing, shipping, and receiving. Outside this room is a shipping platform level with the floors of the motor trucks and protected from the weather by an overhanging hanging platform. Throughout the building are four sets of washrooms and locker rooms, the latter being located on the mezzanine floor above the former. Individual steel lockers are being provided for the employees. There are two auxiliary buildings. The most important of these is the boiler house and garage. The garage section provides for three large motor trucks. There are coal holes in the floor permitting fuel to be shooted into the bunkers underneath. The boiler room occupies the rear section of the building and houses the heating plant and pumps. A 90-foot circular brick chimney serves the boilers. The second separate building is divided into three rooms. One contains the transformers through which pass the high voltage electric current provided for the power equipment's requirements of the plant by the Connecticut Light and Power Company. In another is located the rotary converter, which changes the alternating current in use in Greenwich to the 200-volt direct current required for the numerous motors in the plant. The third room in the building is taken up with the firma- furnace for the, remel- the remelting of the type after it has been used. The upper press does only printing of the highest grade and specializes in book work. It does little of what is generally known as job printing, quote-unquote. The firm's largest customer is Columbia University, its second largest, the American Red Cross. Among other important clients may be numbered, the YMCA, War Camp Community Service, the American Association for International Conciliation, Teachers College, Horace Mann School, the Wallace and Tiernan Company, E.P. Dutton and Company, etc., An interesting specialty for which the uh, the plant is uh, unusually well equipped is printing in foreign languages, both ancient and modern. Not only is there an unusual supply of foreign language types, but the Arbor Press is the only printing plant in the United States having its own type foundry, thus enabling it to design and manufacture its own types for any language for which type may not be available in this country. The plant recently completed for, the, for a missionary the engraving and casting of a set of types in a Chinese dialect. It is now in the process of production types for the Tibetan alphabet. A considerable volume of printing is regularly done in Spanish, Portuguese, French, Italian, Hungarian, German, Greek, and Hebrew, The plant, likewise, has types for Armenian, Gaelic, Icelandic, the American Indian dialects, etc. The plant carries on its payroll about 120 employees, and it is thought probable this number will be increased after the concern is well settled in Greenwich. About half the total will be men, the other half women. As soon as possible, night shifts will be put on in several departments in order to afford opportunities to keep up with the volume of orders now on hand. A feature of the program of the Arbor Press, which should be of considerable interest locally, is the plan for a training school to prepare workers for the skilled processes of printing. As in other fields where craftsmanship is a requisite, it is found that the most satisfactory employees are those trained within the organization. And as work in the printing field is unusually well paid, it is believed that young men and women uh, are now in skilled employment should be able to double their earning power in a reasonable time. Instruction in classes will start at once. Applications or requests for further information regarding opportunities may be addressed by mail to the manager of employment and training. The president of the Arbor Press is Douglas C. McMurtry, who started the business about six years ago with $200 of capital. Mr. McMurtry has already become a resident of Greenwich, living on Calhoun Drive. The secretary of the company is Miss Kathleen Goldsmith, who holds the important post of service manager. The financial department of the company is directed by Mr. Wilson Goodbody, who has become well known as an expert in cost accounting in the printing field. Mr. George R. Grady is the plant superintendent, responsible for all manufacturing operations. He was formerly room foreman for the Arbor Press, and is regarded as an expert in artistic composition. The manager of employment and training is Mr. Walter Morey, a man of wide experience in the printing trades. On the sales force of the concern are Mr. C. L. McMortimer, a resident of Sound Beach, and Mr. John R. Warren in charge of advertising services, Mr. A. Earl Higgins, and in charge of publicity services, Mr. Henry Braxton, formerly head of the publicity department of the Red Cross Institute for Crippled and Disabled Men. The sales and service office, which will be continued at 2929 Broadway, New York City, will be connected with the new plant building by a private telephone wire, Three messenger trips daily will be made between New York, the New York office and the plant to provide for prompt exchange of copy and proofs. The illustration accompanying this article shows the decorative features that will be completed at the earliest possible moment. In candor, it must be pointed out that all are not now completed, as some cannot be undertaken until spring. The effort has been made, however, and will be continued to have the building look for different from the usual type of factory structure. A century ago, Greenwich and the rest of the United States was in the throes of prohibition. Um, and, of course, this was an attempt on the part of uh, those uh, teetotalers out there to um, uh, to wipe us out of uh, uh, alcoholic beverages and uh, and whatnot. Um, it, it was a very, very interesting time, to to say the least. And there was an article that actually brought a smile uh, to me that I found in the Greenwich News and Graphic, uh, and it was published on Friday, March 2nd, 1923, literally about a century ago. Um, and it pointed to a glaring problem that those who were so in favor of the uh, of prohibition, um, <laughs> big hole um, in uh, in the whole uh, argument and debate and what have you that could not be um, uh, solved or done away with or anything, and you're about to find out why. The headline on this reads "Booze Recipes Handy." Encyclopaedia Britannica devotes 25 columns to wet subject. Wet would be the uh, the opposite of dry, obviously. Um, and the story goes as follows, and by the way, this is something that um, apparently came from the, uh, 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 the Hartford Current, uh, but it's been adapted for the uh, Greenwich News and Graphic, and it goes as follows, away with all the encyclopedias, Americana, Britannica, every man's, with an exclamation point, burn all the textbooks. On chemistry, exclamation point, (laughs) dump into the sea the recipe books, uh, exclamation point, grind to pulp the encyclopedias of formula, for it has been discovered that here are the sources from which the mass of, quote, home brewers and amateur vintners, to say nothing of those who quote-unquote make their own alcohol are deriving their knowledge of successful procedure, says the Hartford Current. If one wants to set up a home brewing and get real beer, if he wants to make his own sacramental wines, if he wants to get his own alcohol for making liqueurs, or wishes to go further and obtain a thorough understanding of all the wines and ales ale, rather and whiskeys the public libraries of the country supply all the information well how about that if the dry quote-unquote law is to be enforced the present uh, entire run of encyclopedias chemistry textbooks and volumes piles uh, and volumes piles and burned laws must be passed to make reference to anything with an alcoholic possibility or alcoholic content Quote unquote, under the ban, and it must be made a crime to teach in schools and colleges colleges or anywhere else the chemistry of fermentation or distillation or or to process the printed knowledge. As it is overly, every library contains all one needs to start a brewery, a distillery, or a wine plant in Canada, of course. This is a horrible dilemma, which the quote-unquote dries seem to have overlooked for four years, but the quote-unquote wets have not. (laughs) The books have been diligently used in all city libraries, and those with means have been buying their own guides from the publishers of textbooks and encyclopedias. The number of home brewers from the rich and highly successful producers of beverages to the ignorant and unskilled concoctors of vile beers has astonished those who looked for a reasonable degree of enforcement. The dries have had some misgivings when the commercial reports of the government have disclosed the enormously increased sale of grapes, raisins, prunes, and even oranges and other fruits, and the reviving of the cider-making industry. But they couldn't understand how this could be due to prohibition. If they had watched the public libraries and the sale of chemistry textbooks, they might have gained further light. How about that? There is a 25-column article on wines in the Britannica containing formulas, descriptions of processes, etc., while the same monumental work discusses beer to the extent of four columns. Of course, there is a six-columns article going into processes and chemistry of fermentation, and it discusses whiskeys thoroughly. Seven columns is taken to discuss distillation in all its phases, and a pretty complete job is done by the authors. But the Encyclopedia Britannica's real triumph of information comes after the heading of quote unquote spirits. There you get an expansive treatise on the whole subject with diagrams of stills from the primitive kind used. In Tahiti, to the carefully drawn engineer's prints of great plants in Ireland and Scotland, the diagrams give all a chemical engineer could desire and describe all kinds of spirits and their generation, chemical composition and respective merits. It is the same with other encyclopedias. Then there are the textbooks on chemistry where the knowledge of the subject is set forth exhaustively. When one has gone into the chemistry of fermentations and distillations, there is no more to be said except by the mechanical engineers who do the building or the chemical supply houses which sell apparatus for experimentations for laboratories, public and private. These books are in every well-appointed public library and in every college boy's hands. <laughs> In, in addition, most libraries have exhaustive volumes dealing with the individual subjects of brewing, winemaking, and manufacture of whiskies and liquors. But every library of any pretensions at all has all the main facts and diagrams and directions in its chemistry works. There are any number of so called quote-unquote, recipe books, which go into the subject of making drinks banned by the Volstead Act, reposing on the shelves of all our libraries. One might mention, for instance, the Scientific American Recipe Book, which gives too many pages to count to the subject of making all manner of alcoholic beverages. This is a most complete discussion, Picturing the apparatus, giving myriad formulas and even direction for mixing drinks as it used to be done at the Great American Bar. <laughs> there are hundreds of other books which go into ales and beers for home brewers, wine formulas for country vintners, and many of these are to be found on the shelves of public libraries in every city and hamlet. Well, that is a, um, a, a rather... Um, awkward thing for those who favored the Volstead Act um, that uh, facilitated the uh, Prohibition Era to have to put up with. Again, this was uh, published for your entertainment and mine, and uh, those of 100 years ago, in the Greenwich News and Graphic, on Friday, March 2nd, 1923. Well, thank you, mahalo nui loa, as we say here in Hawaii, and that means... Thank you, <laughs> in Hawaiian language, for tuning in to the 7th of March, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. As I said at the beginning of the show, today is my final day here in Honolulu, and um, I will be jutting out of here to head back over to New York City and then up to Greenwich, courtesy of my good friends over at Hawaiian Airlines, a really great airline. If you're coming to Hawaii, it's the one that I personally recommend this weekly podcast is hosted by me my name is jeffrey bingham mead i'm a direct descendant of the, the 17th century founders of the town of greenwich connecticut a long known as the gateway to new england Greenwich, Connecticut stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. The Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. You know, you can contact me anytime, and the best way to do that is to do so at Seasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to GreenwichAtTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled for next uh, week, and that would be on the 21st of March, and uh, or no, excuse me, the 14th of March, 2023. I stand corrected on that. I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut's history. And uh, I look forward to being back with you very, very soon. Take good care. Aloha, as we say in Hawaii. Have a great one. Bye bye now.